Section 50 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter 15, Economic Change, by William Cunningham, Part 2. From this brief survey of the nature of the revolution, and the causes which occasioned the decay of the old order, we may now turn to look for the first signs of reconstruction. No part of Europe had been more ruthlessly devastated than France during the 14th century and the earlier part of the 15th, but a turning point was reached at last, and the reviving prosperity of the country shaped itself upon new lines. Control of industry and commerce was now exercised by national rather than civic authority while the financial and commercial business of the realm was no longer left to Italians and other strangers, but was organized by native merchants of enterprise and resource. In this new class, one figure is preeminent. No other French merchant attained to wealth at all comparable to that of Jacques Coeur of Montpellier, and few experienced such a sudden reverse of fortune as he suffered when the royal master whom he had served so faithfully imprisoned him and allowed him to die in exile apart from these elements of romance the story of jacques coeur's rise is interesting because of the important part which he took in the political life of france by helping to reorganize the finances of the realm, he brought the crown and the bourgeoisie in all parts of the country into much closer relations, and contributed to the remodeling of economic life and to the rise of one great nationality. His extraordinary commercial prosperity, though transitory, helps us to understand the circumstances under which a merchant class came into prominence in lands where the active trade had hitherto been prosecuted by aliens. The rapid rise of one man to a pinnacle of greatness as a merchant prince throws considerable light on the opportunities for forming capital and investing it available in his day. Jacques Coeur's work as a statesman had a permanent value for his country. He was, for a time, the most influential of the royal advisers. He did much to improve the financial administration and instituted a reform of the coinage. There can be little doubt when we regard his position, his preponderating influence, and his financial ability, that the creation of the permanent taille was due to his initiative. During the Hundred Years' War, France had been subjected not only to the ravages of her enemies, but to pillage by her undisciplined soldiery, who were unpaid and had no other means of obtaining supplies. With the view of removing the excuse for these outrages, the crown at the meeting of the estates in fourteen thirty nine announced its intention of maintaining a standing army and the taille became a permanent source of income which was practically levied at the royal pleasure the project answered the immediate expectations of those who devised it the regular troops well disciplined and restrained from the habitual pillage which had proved the ruin of france expelled the English, and helped to bring large districts of the old Burgundian kingdom within the boundaries of France. But the ulterior effects of the measure were far more important. The basis on which French finance rested was altered, so as to place it on a firmer footing. The main resources of the feudal monarchs had been drawn from the royal estates and supplemented by occasional aids. 
but the institution of a permanent taille now furnished to the crown a regular income from taxation which was defrayed by the trading and industrial as well as the agricultural classes the french crown had been mainly dependent for its revenue on the landed classes but it henceforth became the direct interest of the king to watch and promote the welfare of industry and commerce as a result of this financial policy extraordinary pains were taken in regard to the supervision and direction of industrial life the corps de metier were revived in one town after another but they were not permitted to retain the old status of mere municipal institutions they were brought into direct relations with the crown so that they became part of a centralized system for the administrative control of the whole of french manufactures this centralization and over-regulation came in time to be baneful to industrial interests, but at the outset it was a natural result of the efforts of the royal authority to foster material prosperity. Under Charles the Seventh, the foundations were laid of that bourgeois policy which was pursued more thoroughly and in defiance of the expressed disapprobation of the nobility by Louis the Eleventh we shall be better able to gauge the importance of this change when we come to examine the special character of the subsequent revival of french prosperity in the time of henry of navarre the far-reaching influence exercised by this fiscal change contrasts curiously with the instability of the great commercial connection established by jacques coeur he desired to open up a direct trade with the east and succeeded in obtaining numerous concessions not only from the french crown but also from the pope and from muslim powers in egypt and syria these privileges secured to him the monopoly of many lines of profitable trade he is said to have had no fewer than three hundred factors at various points on the eastern mediterranean this great commercial fabric however rested on concessions personal to jacques coeur and his representatives and on his fall from favor the whole structure collapsed montpelier was the principal seat of his business and the town enjoyed a period of extraordinary prosperity through the trade which he brought to it but this brief efflorescence seems to have had little abiding influence on the future of french commerce the main interest attaching to the career of jacques coeur as a merchant lies in the illustration which it furnishes of the possibilities open in the early fifteenth century to men who had the capacity to use them at first sight the conditions of life in that age appear to have been such as to make it impossible to understand how great fortunes could have been amassed if the career of jacques coeur had been absolutely unique it might be sufficient to say that he was able to take advantage of a great monopoly and to trade at an enormous rate of profit but he did not stand entirely alone his case was not altogether solitary though like william de la pole and william cannings he was preeminent among a considerable number of wealthy men it is not easy to see how this class could have come into being in so many places during this particular period but this difficulty must be faced an increasing scarcity of the precious metals would seem to have involved a steady fall in prices so that apart altogether from the effects of war and pestilence the monetary conditions were singularly unfavorable to successful trade commerce between europe and asia was carried on by means of a constant drain of silver from the west there was no other suitable commodity for export in return for silks and spices 
nor was the stock of bullion being adequately replenished from european mines the trade with morocco did not result in an importation of african gold but involved an additional demand on the european supply of silver it appears that the value of silver was steadily rising from the middle of the fourteenth century onwards though the fall of prices was not so great as might have been expected a counteracting influence was at work which affected the currency and prices in much the same way as an additional supply of silver bullion there seems to have been a greatly increased rapidity of circulation money was not laid by in hoards to the same extent as formerly and masses of bullion which had been stored for public or private purposes were being regularly utilized the treasure of the feudal monarchs had been withdrawn from circulation for years charles v of france had accumulated a reserve of not less than seventeen million livres but the kings who borrowed from jacques coeur and his contemporaries were less thrifty they only obtained money when they had need to spend it and there was no reason that it should ever lie idle in the same way it would appear that as the monopoly of the aliens was broken down the hordes of humbler citizens were drawn upon and employed in active commerce by increased rapidity of circulation the diminishing stock of silver seems to have been rendered available to meet commercial demands and europe was saved from the embarrassment of severe financial depression it is certainly remarkable that during the century which immediately preceded the discovery of america and the importation of bullion from the new world there should have been so many instances of men who rose to considerable wealth and who in some cases amassed very large fortunes this phenomenon should be borne in mind even if we are dissatisfied with attempts to account for it but it seems to be at least partially accounted for by the shifting of trade into new channels and into the hands of native merchants and partly by the practical increase of the available currency which resulted from the manner in which hordes of bullion were being brought into circulation success in commerce had apparently been the chief avenue to wealth in the earlier part of the fifteenth century when we pass to the latter half there is less difficulty in tracing the means by which fortunes could be amassed the matter is particularly clear in the case of the group of augsburg capitalists who were destined to exercise such a potent influence on the political and economic condition of europe they could draw from three sources of wealth for they had access to many frequented trading centers they were connected with an important textile industry and they have the opportunity of engaging in profitable mining speculation the fresh supplies of silver which they obtained from the mines enabled them to accumulate and store wealth for profitable investment as opportunities arose the man of frugal habits with a prosperous self-sufficing household can lay up supplies against a bad season but his wealth is not in a form which enables him to avail himself of chances for turning over his capital only those who are in the habit of using money or of handling the precious metals are likely to make rapid gains and so to amass a great fortune the fugger family of augsburg eventually became preeminent among european financiers they were originally interested in the weaving of cloth but early in the fifteenth century they began to take part in the spice and silk trades and established connections with venice jacob fugger who settled the style and constitution of the firm received his business training at the german factory in that city even before his time the family had made some profitable speculations in mining 
they were engaged in working for silver in tyrol in 1487 and ten years later they took up copper mining in hungary they contrived to combine with other augsburg merchants and form a ring which controlled the copper market at venice the career of the fuggers was not exceptional the welsers attained to great financial eminence by similar methods they too had laid the foundations of their fortune by trading with venice and subsequently engaged in silver mining in tyrol and in saxony altogether there was about this time in different parts of germany a great development of mining both for the precious and the useful metals the working of silver at schwatz dates from fourteen forty eight at salzburg from fourteen sixty and in saxony from fourteen seventy one while the bohemian mines which had been practically closed for eighty years in consequence of the hussite wars were reopened in fourteen ninety two early in the sixteenth century some nuremberg capitalists established iron forges in thuringia and they were also actively engaged in copper mining apparently in all these cases commerce gave these enterprising undertakers their first start the mineral resources of germany though not unknown had been neglected but money made in commerce was available in the fifteenth century to work the mines and large fortunes were gained in connection with these operations even before the discovery of america with her extraordinary treasure there had been considerable additions to the supply of silver in europe it is easy to see that the augsburg merchants were able to secure the means of hoarding and of thus amassing wealth which they were eager to use as capital in any direction offering a profit though augsburg and its neighborhood had afforded excellent facilities for the formation of capital it gradually ceased to be the best center for making profitable investments the changed political conditions of europe and the new discoveries had to some extent interfered with the traffic on the great route from the adriatic by the brenner and the inn the commerce of venice was declining relative even to that of some other italian cities the genoese secured a practical monopoly in the wool trade between the north and italy by the valley of the rhone and after the fall of the greek empire at constantinople they had been permitted by the turks to establish a factory there florence by her victory over pisa and her agreement with genoa as to leghorn was becoming a considerable naval power and the trade with morocco offered an opportunity for the rise of a new florentine commercial aristocracy venice had lost much of her old importance as a trading centre and a large proportion of the traffic which was maintained between the adriatic and the low countries was now conducted by sea augsburg formerly situate on one of the great routes of the world's trade found that the stream of commerce had been diverted its merchants recognized the trend of affairs and began to establish themselves in the low countries they could gather the threads of old connections there the genoese were in the habit of frequenting bruges but the venetians dispatched some of their galleys to its rising competitor antwerp and in this city an augsburg capitalist ludwig menting established a business in fourteen seventy four the other leading houses subsequently followed this example and antwerp came to be the chief centre for the financial operations of the great german capitalists their fortunes were not inseparably linked with the prosperity of the town of their origin capital is fluid and can be easily transferred from one city or one employment to another the fuggers and velsers and other augsburg capitalists were ready to adapt themselves to the changed conditions of business the centre of the world's commerce was shifting 
but they would not submit to be kept back from having a share in the new developments of trade and finance. At the beginning of the 16th century, Antwerp afforded unexampled opportunities to enterprising men of any nationality who had wealth at their command and were anxious to engage in commerce. The Portuguese had opened direct trading intercourse with the East, but they were too busily engaged in securing their footing in the Indies and in prosecuting the distant trades to have energy to spare for increasing their shipping in northern waters. They left to other merchants the business of distributing to European consumers the spices and other valuable products which were imported to Lisbon, and Antwerp, from her position, and still more from her policy, became the chief center of the capitalists who were ready to take a part in this profitable commerce. The organizations for intermunicipal commerce in the Middle Ages hampered the enterprising capitalist, as they tended to confine him to dealings in one particular class of goods and to limit the amount of his transactions. The modern capitalist desires to be free to engage in any promising venture and to push his business as fast as he can, but to this the medieval merchants hardly aspired. To secure a footing at some particular port was a difficult and costly business, and when they succeeded in this, they organized the trade with care so as to avoid flooding the market with their imports and to ensure that all who joined in maintaining the factory and in contributing to the expenses of the establishment should have a share of the available trade. The old merchant organizations, with their particular privileges, their private factories, and well-ordered trade, were a mere encumbrance at a time when the main routes of the world's commerce were being shifted. The real chance of rising to fortune lay with the men who were free to adapt themselves to these changing conditions, and Antwerp was a town which imposed little restriction on the employment of capital in any direction. The merchant adventurers had transferred their factory from Bruges to Antwerp in 1446, but they were almost the only traders who enjoyed special privileges in the city on the Scheldt. English commerce had given a great impetus to the growth of the town, which also became a staple for the products of Holland, and eventually secured much of the trade in fish, barley, and salt that had been previously carried on at Malines. The men of Antwerp were thus brought into direct antagonism with other Flemish cities, and were forced almost unconsciously, perhaps, to adopt an economic policy in consonance with the requirements of the coming age. The towns which followed the traditional scheme tried to make outside commerce directly subservient to their particular interests as producers or consumers. The men of Antwerp were merely concerned to increase the volume of trade and to take advantage of any benefit that happened to accrue. They bought out the rights of the landowners who took tolls on the Scheldt and made their city a center of free intercourse, where men of all nations were welcome to engage in trade on equal terms. During the Middle Ages, the only opportunities for such unrestricted intercourse had occurred at fairs. Antwerp owed its first importance to one of these gatherings, and so far as its economic institutions were concerned, it was not so much a city as a permanent fair. Hence, it was most natural that the German capitalists, who saw that traffic was being diverted to new centers, should emigrate to a town which offered the fewest restrictions to their operations as merchants or financiers. Bruges was completely distanced at the close of the 15th century. It continued for a time to be the privileged resort of Spanish merchants, but it lay off the line of Portuguese trading connections. The German merchants, who had been the distributors of the spices imported by the Venetians, 
now became the principal intermediaries in connection with the cargoes brought from the east to lisbon which was frequented by the factors of the principal german houses though antwerp was the chief center of their commercial operations it followed almost as a necessary consequence of the commercial activity of antwerp that this city soon became a great monetary center in this respect again it had the character of a permanent fair the fairs of the middle ages had been the great occasions for financial transactions of every kind rates for making remittances could be easily quoted and loans could be negotiated to run to the date of the next fair there was a sort of clearing-house at each fair for settling the transactions that took place during its continuance one district after another had been the principal scene of these operations the fairs of champagne had given place to those of geneva geneva had been superseded by lyon which charles the eighth found a convenient place for making payments to his swiss mercenaries in the sixteenth century antwerp took the lead it was a money market where there was less organization and more freedom for negotiating loans than at Lyon. Business was carried on with little variation all the year round, and was not restricted by the definite dates fixed by the occurrence of the fair, nor was there any attempt to fix a normal rate of exchange, as had been the practice at Lyon. The merchant had far better opportunities here than elsewhere of borrowing capital at the moment when he required it, and for the precise term desired by him so that mercantile life at antwerp had many features in common with the commercial centers of the modern era the discovery of the new world with its enormous treasure of precious metals introduced an extraordinary confusion into economic relations in europe there are many unsolved problems as to the course of the distribution of the american silver and the effects produced by it in different countries but at all events we can see that the money market at antwerp was so arranged as to be capable of taking a very effective part in the transference of the precious metals from country to country and in facilitating the application of capital to new enterprises these monetary and commercial conditions were favorable to rapid growth and antwerp rose quickly from comparative unimportance to be the leading city of europe she was enriched by her connections with lisbon and the spice trade of the portuguese she did not however remain a mere trading city but became a manufacturing town as well there was a considerable migration of german industry in the wake of german capital both the linen and the fustian manufacture were attracted to a region from which there was such easy access to distant markets the prosperity of the town increased by leaps and bounds until in 1576 the Spanish fury dealt it a blow from which it never recovered. Though her greatness was short-lived, Antwerp occupies a very important place in the transition from medieval to modern commerce, for her merchants are said to have developed the modern system of commission business. In the Middle Ages, every possible obstacle had been put in the way of such transactions. Each merchant traveled personally with his own goods, or consigned them to a factor who acted exclusively as the representative of a single employer. Each city was cautious about admitting outsiders to any trading privileges within its walls, and no merchant, who was free to carry on business himself, was allowed to color the goods of an unfree trader, or to act as his broker. At Antwerp, no such jealousy of outsiders existed. Anyone might settle and commence trade, and there was no objection to his doing business for the men of any city or on any terms that suited him this implied an immense reduction in the cost of maintaining agencies and in the incidental expenses of trade 
and when once the new system got a fair trial, there could be no doubt that it had come to stay. The rise of Antwerp is also significant of the change in the center of gravity of the world's commerce which has occurred since ocean voyages have become the chief means of mercantile intercourse. The Mediterranean ports were left stranded, and Lisbon failed to take their place. The trade which had been opened up by Portuguese enterprise did not react on home industries or give increased and profitable employment to productive laborers. The carrying trade between Lisbon and Antwerp was largely taken up by the merchants of Holland, who had ships and sailors engaged in fishing, and these could be easily and remuneratively employed in other waters. The Iberian Peninsula offered an immense market for the salt fish, the cloth, and linen of the Low Countries. Antwerp merchants had the means of purchasing the products brought from the east, while the energies of the Spaniards and the Portuguese were thrown into the task of establishing their power in the Indies and prosecuting distant trade, the Netherlanders reaped much of the profit of carrying goods in European waters, and their industrial and maritime activity was greatly stimulated. Antwerp obtained for a time that supremacy in the world's commerce, which has never since been wrested from northern ports. The discussion of the application of capital to commerce and of the changes in business practice which it introduced, have led us far away from the rise of the Augsburg merchants in the 15th century. We should have to turn back to a very early time in order to trace the first beginnings of the influence which capital exercised on manufactures. Indications of it can be found in the 13th century, but it was at that date quite exceptional. Medieval industrial organization usually consisted of a number of separate guilds, each composed of independent craftsmen. These associations had the power of regulating the trades with which they were respectively connected, subject to the approval by municipal or royal authority of the manner in which they exercised their rights and of the particular rules which they framed. If we are careful to remember that while this was the ordinary state of affairs, it was not universal in all cities, that its origin was not the same in all places, and that it did not hold good equally in all trades, we may look a little more closely at the economic features and conditions of this type of organization. The craft guild was formed with reference to the requirements of a particular city and looked to a very limited circle of the public for the demand for goods. Part of its function was to see that the quality of the goods was maintained, but its policy was chiefly determined by a desire to give each member his fair share of the available employment. Each master was to have his chance, and none was allowed, by unduly multiplying the number of apprentices or journeymen, to supplant other workmen. These restrictions told in favor of the good training of apprentices, and improved their chance of employment as journeymen after they had served their time, but the rules hampered any man who was trying to push his business and manufacture on a large scale. The master workman would be in the habit of buying on his own account the material which he required or he might have the advantage of purchasing wholesale in association with other members of the craft. He would also sell the finished article to the man who wished to use it, the consumer. In some crafts, such as the tailors, an even more primitive practice was long maintained, and the craftsman worked on materials furnished to him by the consumers. Hence we can see that there were two points at which the intervention of the capitalist would easily occur. In the case of goods exported to a distant market, when an exporting merchant was the customer, he might find it convenient to have them manufactured under his direction and at his time instead of procuring them from an independent craftsman. 
the transition was easy from the position of a constant purchaser to that of an employer on the other hand when goods were made from imported materials it was convenient for the merchant to retain his ownership in the materials and employ craftsmen to work them up the effect of drawing any industry into the circle of distant trade with reference either to the materials or to the vent for the product was to render capitalist intervention almost inevitable when the capitalist system is thoroughly adopted the employer owns the materials and also undertakes to act as an intermediary in the disposal of finished goods it is needless to observe that when this transition is complete it becomes the interest of the employer to push his trade and to turn over his capital as rapidly as may be he has to cater for a varying market and the restrictions devised for those who have been sharing the employment afforded by a known market would not suit him at all there were some industries however in great commercial centers which from their first planting were dependent either for materials or for the vent of their products on distant trade organization in such callings was almost certain to proceed on capitalist lines the rules laid down by the leading men were devised by great employers and not as in the craft guilds by small masters who personally worked at the trade the working and dressing of cloth at florence was dependent on the importation of undressed cloths which were converted into excellently finished fabrics and exported on profitable terms this arte di calamala appears to have been organized and regulated as a capitalist industry from the earliest times and the arte di lana which was dependent on the importation of raw wool from the north was also an association of wealthy employers the arte di sita was another long-established industry it had been improved by immigrants from lucca in the early part of the fourteenth century and was conducted on similar lines capitalist organization was not universal in industries of this commercial type for we find that the silk trade of venice in the thirteenth century was regulated by small masters who were however dependent on the services of merchants for securing a stock of materials to be used in regular work and for selling the fabrics of the looms it need be no matter of surprise that a change had occurred before the most flourishing period of the venetian silk trade in the fifteenth century and that merchants were engaged in it as capitalist employers end of section fifty recording by colleen mcmahon